We are back in the book of 2 Timothy, and as been uh, practiced these last few weeks, I wanted to share a story from uh, the Reformation time. And, and this morning, I want to talk about William Perkins. William Perkins was born in 1558 in the village of Marston Jabot, Warwickshire, England. His parents were Thomas and Hannah Perkins. And as a young man, Perkins was a rebellious and disobedient boy. He lived recklessly, used foul language, often drinking too much. And it seemed he was on his way to live a wretched, useless life. But the Lord had other plans for him. In 1577, he entered Christ College in Cambridge and earned his bachelor's degree in 1581, then his master's degree in 1584. But before that, the Lord powerfully converted Perkins when he was still a young man. It was said that the Holy Spirit began to convict him by way of the words of a young mother to her child. Perkins overheard a woman scolding her disobedient child saying, hold your tongue or I will give you to that drunken Perkins yonder. Shocked that even strangers knew of his wild behavior, he was deeply convicted. He was ashamed of himself. And by God's grace, used that to bring him to faith in Christ Jesus. He would change his course of study from mathematics to theology. He was arrested fully to study the word of God, to know God well so that he could teach others also. At Cambridge, he came under the influence of Lawrence Chatterton, who became his mentor and discipled him through his years of study. And other men, such as Richard Greenham and Richard Rogers, became close friends, and together they formed a spiritual brotherhood. In 1584, from 1584 until his death in 1602, Perkins was a preacher and a lecturer at St. Andrew's Church in Cambridge. His style of preaching was plain and straightforward so that everyone could understand his messages. He was very direct in his preaching, urging people to examine their hearts in the presence of God. It was said that his was an awakening ministry which stirred lost souls to see the reality of eternal condemnation. Many people were saved under his preaching because of the attraction to Jesus Christ. He was a fellow at Christ College, which meant he was involved in the lives of the students, preaching, lecturing, tutoring students. He would urge them to read Protestant writers alongside the Bible. He himself was a man who lived a godly life and modeled it well for his students. He influenced many at the college, some of whom became very influential Puritan theologians like William Ames and Richard Sibbs and John Cotton and John Preston and Thomas Goodwin. Perkins, like other Puritans, realized that outward reformation of the church and of individual people was not enough. Inward cleansing worked by the Holy Spirit was needed. The Reformation had opened many people's eyes to the truth of the gospel and the heirs of the Roman Catholic Church, but every person needed to be inwardly cleansed by the work of God to be saved. He believed and taught that no matter how reformed a person may be in his talk and outward behavior, he must have the cleansing blood of Jesus applied to his heart by the Holy Spirit. His writings are still used even today and have been very helpful to the spiritual growth of the church. He tried to explain the Bible in a way that everyone could understand. He was not afraid to stand boldly for the truth. He opposed false doctrines who taught that God chose the people whom he saw beforehand and would accept his grace. Also those who taught that salvation is partly mercy and partly works. He not only exposed these errors, but also explained the scriptural view on these doctrines. One of his books that has impacted me greatly was a book entitled The Art of Prophesying, which is a book about preaching book about speaking the truth of God's word to God's people. 
He is well known today as the father of Puritanism because of his great influence on later Puritans. William Perkins began his adult life, though it said, on a trajectory to uselessness. He loved himself. He loved his ways, his comforts, his plans, and despised the Lord. But God granted repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and a life that seemed useless now became useful to the Lord, an honorable vessel in the hands of God. William Perkins' life is a testimony to us that the Lord will use anyone he desires. The Apostle Paul is another example of this. God took a violent man, a man set on destroying men and women, and saved him. God changed him and set him on a course for God's glory in the church. And by God's grace, Timothy then was called to him to alongside Paul's ministry and place there. And we've been on this journey to understand the book of 2 Timothy and the instructions that Paul has for his protege, Timothy. These instructions for Timothy are not just for Timothy, and they're not just for preachers, and they're not just for elders, but they're for the whole church, the whole of the people of God. Even when Paul is giving directions to Timothy, there's something for us to learn in these directions. Sometimes these directions have a direct application to us, wherein we to have the same attitude or demeanor or do the same things that Paul has called Timothy to do. And I pray that this, this book has been an encouragement to you and will continue to do so. We're going to pick up where I left off two weeks ago in 2 Timothy 2. So I would encourage you to turn there if you haven't already. And we're going to look at verses 14 through the end of the chapter, through verse 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And if you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 935. And I would encourage you to have it open and follow along as I read. Starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble that will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This morning, I'm going to handle this passage a little differently than what I'm used to. I'm doing this because after I read and reread this text multiple times this week, I believe the point of the text is the usefulness of the worker of God. 
And as I kept reading, I kept coming back to this idea, am I useful to the Lord? Am I useful to the Lord? And right off the beginning there, verse 14, Paul says that those who quarrel about words does no good. It's useless. And so it seems to me he's showing us two ways for Timothy to live, for the Christian to live. You, you'll have a useless life centered on yourself, on your ways, or you'll have a useful life centered on Christ and his ways. And so I've, I've broken the text into those two headings, and I'll lead with the negative first. So the, the useless worker, and then we'll move to the useful worker. And if you're new to our church, we're, we're glad you're here, but we're a Bible church, and that's central to what we do here and, and, and what we look at in ministry. So the Bible, the Word. So if you don't have a Bible open, if you're not looking at 2 Timothy 2, you're going to get lost, and most likely you're going to get distracted, okay? So I encourage you to have it open and, and, and follow with me as I go through the Scripture this morning. But before I do, I want to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we're, we're very thankful for your word that gives us truth to deal with every moment. And your word is good and it brings nourishment to our souls. And so we prepare to hear your word preached. Help us to have open hearts, wide open to receive your word. Conform us to your truth and lead us on a path of righteousness so that we would live a life that would bring glory to you. And I ask that you would set aside all distractions from the minds of your people this morning. That you would give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech as I share your word. May you be honored in our midst this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So first is the useless worker's words. This passage has a lot to say about words. Words are very important. If you remember when we looked at the, the epistle of James last year, our words have impact. And they mean something. Jesus has some things to say about our words. In Matthew 12, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Friends, your words are not wasted. Your words are heard. They're not something you throw away and you will give an account for every word you speak. And so Paul charges Timothy right off the bat in verse 14 to watch your words. He says, do not quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And in this church, they were fighting about words. They were hair splitting and arguing about words. Now, now maybe that's, that's part of the words, but really it's, it's mainly not about the words per se, but the battle for words, meaning Paul is correcting those who out of self-interest and out of a love to debate in order to win esteem and reputation, and he's warning them, don't, don't do that. The useless worker will war about words. The useless worker will also have lots of foolish and ignorant controversies that we read. And he says, you know, they bring quarrels. They question scripture. They distort truth. They create doubt. They weaken faith. They undermine confidence in the Lord. Often lead to a compromise of convictions. And, and in that, it produces quarrels. He's saying they literally are stupid with their words. That's the careless worker. And since they also, in this passage, they strive for irreverent babble in their words, which is simply false teaching. They're replacing the gospel with discussions that suit their needs and passions. I believe they're, they're bored with the gospel. It's boring to them. That's old news. That's, that's for old-time church. 
That's for the prior generations. We, we need something new. We need something innovative. We need something clever and fresh. We don't need to be original. We, just, we don't need to see, share the same old story. We need something new. And I have to tell you, one of the best compliments I get after I preach is, Jeff, you said the same thing last week. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. And I say, amen. I want to be boring like that. I don't want to grow cold or old to the story. I want to revel in this old story. It's the best news in the world. And useless workers, they they think they need to add something new. They need a new look, a a fresh viewpoint in life. Some new steps, some new insights that no one has ever seen. And they argue about things that don't matter. And they breed quarrels to satisfy their need to win arguments. And what what, what should we do? What should our response be to these these useless workers? Paul, Paul is blunt. He says in verse 16, avoid them which means to not stand around them. It literally means to shun them, to walk around them. Don't listen to them. And then later in verse 23, he says, we're we're to have nothing to do with them. He's saying, don't get sucked into their arguments, into their debates, into their circles of conversation and teaching that won't be useful or helpful. And this is free advice, okay? It not only applies to the church, and the false teaching in the church, but it also applies to online debates. I know that some of you like to debate on Facebook. Stop it. It is useless. I I have pastor friends that I see on Facebook and Twitter constantly just spending their time on this, and I think, how do you have time for this? And when we constantly, as, as a Christian, get into these arguments, debating people, have no interest no interest discussing the truth of scripture. And I'll just say to you, friends, avoid it. Avoid the comment section online, okay? Just avoid it. You'll find more joy, trust me. So that's the useless worker's words. Second, the useless worker's service. The useless worker will lead people into more and more ungodliness, Paul says in verse 16. Their talk is irreverent, so it will take people away from God. It is against God. It is godless. It is trivial chattering. It doesn't lift up or encourage, but it brings about more ungodliness. It isn't not just good for us, but it's destructive. He says says about their talk, their talk will spread like gangrene. Boy, there's a word picture for you, right? Their service to people and their words is like death being spread. Their teaching, their service to the church is compared to gangrene. It's If not treated properly and carefully, it can quickly lead to amputation or death. And false religion and lies, these these deceptions spread faster than truth because the sinful heart is more receptive to them. And their false teaching, their service. Paul says there's two two primary teachers. He, He calls them by name. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. I mean, they've, they've left the truth. They've departed from the truth. And we see this today. In a day of tolerance and relativism, you have this idea of, of my truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. And this isn't a new thought. 
You know, this was there in Eden, in the garden. Adam and Eve insisted on their right to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to decide what is right and good and what it, it was their truth, they thought. And when you believe that you have a truth, you've put yourself in a prideful position of defining all truth. You and I are not creators of truth. And so we shouldn't speak and act that way. Instead, we should declare the truth. There's one truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way. And Jesus is the only Savior for us. He's the only way. We are slaves to sin. We, we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. And there's this great gulf between us and heaven. And so we need a way. And the only way is Jesus Christ. He is the way. But not only that, he is the truth. He is not a truth. He is the truth. And there's a difference. He came to preach truth and he came to embody truth for us. It's, it's not our truth or your truth. It's all his. It's his truth. The truth. Sorry, my iPad's not cooperating here. And then he says in, in, in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and when you follow Jesus, friends, you get life. Right? False teaching about God leads people away from God. And that's what Paul is warning Timothy and the church of when he's, he's naming names here. Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching that this false truth that the resurrection had already happened. And it's not the resurrection of Jesus. This is the resurrection of believers. They, they were likely teaching that believers have already achieved resurrection in a spiritual sense as Christians and thus should not expect a future resurrection of the body at the last judgment. They were taking a real teaching and then they were twisting it. And yes, Paul said in one, of, in one sense, we have already been raised with Christ, but in also another sense, we're not yet raised. We've been given new life through the Spirit, but we are not yet raised to our glorified bodies. And the stakes are high in this particular bit of false teaching. To deny the resurrection is to miss the faith altogether. And their worthless service, their useless service was upsetting the faith of some. He says in verse 18, the word for upsetting is the word John uses to describe Jesus when he overturns the tables going into the, the temple in John chapter 2. Do you remember that story? The upsetting the faith of some, it means it's destroying people. This isn't just some small thing. He's describing this as a spiritual destruction of people's faith in Christ. And then it leads to the description of their service with the analogy that Paul gives in verses 20 through 21. He gives this picture. He says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That great house is that of the church family and and Paul is distinguishing the difference between those that are useless and those that are useful in the church. There are vessels in the church that are honorable and dishonorable. Vessels of wood and clay are regarded as dishonorable because they're used for carrying filthy content, contents 
out of the house. They're literally trash cans. When you have someone over your house for a nice meal, you don't show them your trash can, no matter how fancy it is. Worse yet, you don't serve the meal on the trash can. Right? When you have someone over your house, what do you, what do you serve usually? You know, the, the fine china, the honorable. You, you serve the honorable, the, the gold and silver. Those are the things that have been set apart that are useful for the master. It's the fine china that you bring out. That's what serves the meal. And the church is in mind here. That's why Paul says in verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use. God's people must cleanse themselves of false teachers. They should put false teachers under church discipline. In 1 Timothy 5.20 is, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If teachers in the church persist in false teaching and do not repent, Paul says they must be excommunicated. And these false teachers are compromising the witness of the church. They're not holy. They're not useful for every good work. And last, he says, the useless worker's passions. What is the passion for useless workers? He says in verse 22, it's youthful passions, as Paul says. Now, when we read youthful passions, we tend to think that it has to do with sexual passions. And it might be, and I I believe partly so, but youthful passions can be much more than that. Really, youthful passions can cloud minds, young minds, for expediency. Young people really want things to happen fast, right? Us older people, do you remember being young? Do you remember being in school thinking the clock was never moving? We, we want things to happen fast. And so the youthful tendency is we need things to happen fast. We need quickly. We're, dri- we're driven in, in the youth to impatience. There's also a youthful view of pain, right? Which is to avoid pain at all costs. I need to avoid pain. That's why I never ran. Whoever runs for fun, you're, you're gifted type, I know. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. But avoid pain. That's painful. And youth, you don't want to avoid pain. A youthful passion also has a distorted view of fairness and equality, which sometimes is divorced from reality. The last thing I thought of was youthful passion, sometimes of knowledge. How many of us thought we knew everything when we were young and our parents were idiots? We, we think we know it all in our youth. And he says, avoid these youth, youthful passions. Avoid these useless Worker will be stuck in their youthful passions, unwilling to kill them and follow after God. So this is the useless. This is the negative. The useless worker destroys people with their words. It leads people to more ungodliness and follows their passions more than following after God. But the opposite is the useful worker. Are you useful? And before you go careening off into some deeply depressing thoughts, I'm not beginning to question your existence. Does anyone believe that you're useful? Does some organization, some cause find your work useful or helpful? Would you be missed? 
See, it's, it's normal to want to be useful, to be helpful, to be needed. And much of our lives is, is built around trying to prove to ourselves and trying to prove to others who live around us that we are, in fact, useful. Why is it that we crave to be thought useful? To a child who wants to be useful and runs to the kitchen to help mom prepare dinner. To the youth that has their first real job and their first real paycheck. To the man or woman after working so hard for many years, getting the degree and learning and growing, and then years of experience in the job, getting the promotion, getting the recognition, all because they want to be found useful. And we find our sense of worth when people value our usefulness in this world. And of course, the opposite is true. Why do mothers in our country increasingly find a lack of satisfaction and worth by staying home and raising kids? Partly because kids never say thank you. And they think they're not useful. Why is it that when you lose a job, it's devastating? Why do we work so hard at saving and planning for retirement, but we're scared to death to get to that retirement? Because we're fearful that eventually we won't be found useful. And we want to be thought as of useful. We want to be useful. But perhaps we're looking in the wrong place. You know, we're all created to be servants. That's what you were created to be. It's rooted in your DNA. God created you to be a servant. Nothing is more important in all of the Christian life than understanding and believing that we're created to be useful for God as his servant. You and I were not made to be useful just for ourselves or our families, but for God. And these thoughts will revolutionize your life if you can see it from God's vantage point and live it out through the gospel. So Paul is going to make this transition in the text, I believe in verse 21, as he's comparing the, the useless worker, one who is selfishly focused on himself, the dishonorable vessel, to the useful worker. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And the useful worker is the honorable vessel. And Paul has some descriptions for this one. And so it's the same as we covered under the useless worker, the, their words and service and passion. So the useful worker's words. Look back at verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The useful worker is diligent in their study of God's word. The, the better translation is to be diligent, to show yourself to God as one approved. It conveys the idea to make every effort you can to study and to know the word of God. A useful worker is devoted to God's word. You won't be useful to the Lord if you're not reading the Bible. If a man is unwilling to study the word, then he is unwilling to serve as an elder in the church. Their words must be soaked in the word of God. Our words must be soaked in the word of God. A useful worker will desire to be in God's word and to speak God's word. 
A useful worker will also be unashamed as they, he says, rightly handle the word of truth. To rightly handle comes from the Greek term for ortho. And we get the word orthodox or orthodontics, right? It means to cut straight or to set straight. And so his goal is that the useful worker will handle the word of God correctly, setting a straight path to understand and apply it to her life. It's, it's used of a doctor who makes an incision in a patient for surgery. It's also used of an architect who, who designed a house so that all sides fit together properly. And the same word is used in the Old Testament of Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your, your path straight. And the big idea is a useful worker who pleases God must have an unwavering commitment to a faithful exposition of the word of truth, to cut it straight, to set it straight for understanding. And so although these verses can, can and should be viewed and applied for the church member, they're directed at the elders. The exhortation is for every pastor to handle the word of God rightly. And the, this primarily means the gospel, but, but all of the word of God. Timothy must not play fast and loose with God's revelation, but must handle it with care and accuracy. It's not okay for Timothy to say whatever comes to his mind or be innovative with truth. He must simply handle the truth of God's word rightly. And the encouragement for Timothy to remember who he is doing this for is right there in the text. It says, to present yourself to God as one approved. Not to a man, not to the congregation, not to your teachers or the people who support you. It's to God. The primary audience is God. Ultimately, every preacher will stand before God for their words. So that's the useful worker's words. Second is their service. And the useful worker demonstrates in their service that they understand that ultimately the Lord is the one who's in charge. Paul says in verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The foundation, it seems, is the church, which Christ died and spilled his blood for. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, Paul wrote in the first letter to Timothy. When false teachers, useless workers come to destroy it, the church will make it through because it's built on the gospel. The gospel is like a foundation because God's people build their life and faith upon it and they find their meaning and purpose in it. The church, the people that make up the church, we should be gospel people. The gospel undergirds everything. It defines how God's people live and relate to one another. And, and the seal that he says in verse 19, the seal was a sign of ownership. And God has placed his divine seal of ownership on the church. He knows whom are his. My, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus says. And the source of this quotation of verse 19 is, is not certain, but it's possibly from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, when some Israelites were about to rebel against the Lord and his appointed leaders of Moses and Aaron. Moses declared to them and to the other rebels, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself, Numbers 16, 5. False teachers, useless workers can cause damage, but ultimately they can't steal the sheep. 
And then Paul says there at the end of verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This quotation may be adapted from the same passage in the book of Numbers, in which Moses later warned the godly. He says, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. Those who did not separate themselves from the wicked rebels were destroyed when it says in verse 32 of number 16, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. The sway of false teachers is strong. The relationships that are built and sustained by the lies of a false teacher causes people to still follow and then support them. And I've seen this all too often. They're swept away into the same sins of their false teacher. Instead, they should shun them, avoid them, and follow the teaching of those that are the honorable vessels, as Paul says. Paul continues to give some insights in what the useful worker will look like. He says in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The Lord's servant, literally, he says, the Lord's slave. He shouldn't be constantly caught up with foolish and ignorant controversy. False teachers' arguments were literally moronic and ignorant, and thus it's tempting to use their foolishness against them because it was so silly. But the Lord's servant the elder, the church leader, that Paul has in mind shouldn't get caught up in those foolish arguments. These, these are not gospel issues because the Lord's servant should also always defend a faith. Instead, these are secondary issues, probably even lower than secondary issues. And there's a lot of issues that we shouldn't spend our time debating. Instead, we should follow what Paul says, ignore it. Keep the main thing the main thing. We shouldn't quarrel and fight about these issues. Instead, Paul says the useful worker should be kind. We must be firm or forceful with the truth, but we're to be at the same time kind to everyone, even our enemies. We should be like Christ. A useful worker should be able to teach too. They should be able to, to open up God's word and bring understanding. A useful worker means that they're able to teach and the people they teach will go away living differently, believing differently, thinking differently, having now a bigger view of God, a bigger view of grace, a bigger view of Christ, and a bigger view of, of God and his plan for the church. And they'll be changed in the way they think and the way they believe and the way they live and the way they respond to the truth of God by the faithful teaching of those that lead them. He says they also are to patiently endure evil meaning they're not resentful. They don't hold grudges. And this is hard when you've been sinned against. Many of us are quick to take offense and slow to forgive. William Barclay said, there may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does great damage in the Christian church. Ouch. Nothing destroys a man or woman quicker than their inability to let things go, to endure evil without consuming their minds and hearts with what had happened to them. And the last exhortation he says here is 
the useful worker corrects his opponents with gentleness, not with clever or sarcastic put-downs, but with gentle correction, speaking the truth in love. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian church. And Jesus is our example of this. He never manipulated his opponents. He never foolishly argued. But he would rebuke their falseness calmly and straightforward. He would, he would answer their loaded questions honestly. And he taught them both difficult truth boldly, but he was also quiet and self-controlled and kind to the hearer. And then Paul says here, as we, as we interact with those in verse 25, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. All genuine repentance will be the product, product of God's sovereign grace, just as in every aspect of salvation. No one, no matter how sincere and determined, can truly repent and change his own sinful thoughts and ideas outside of God's sovereign care. Only God can work that miracle in the heart. And this is what it means to be in the bondage of sin. And so friends, if you're praying for those that have yet to turn their life to God, remember it's God is the one who does the releasing. It is God the one who does the saving. It is God that brings repentance because it can only be God who rescues them out of the snare of the devil. And if you're out and witnessing to false teachers, remember that it is God who releases them from the snare of the devil. Perhaps that will change your viewpoint of them, knowing that they're captured by the enemy and need to be released. We've looked at the words in the service. Last is the useful worker's passions. Verse 22, back up to verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We either foster our youthful passions or we flee from them. We talked about these passions earlier with the useless worker, but if you're to spend some time this afternoon, which youthful passions currently are ensnaring you? Which ones are holding you as you seek to be useful to the Lord? You probably have one or two that quickly come to your mind and you're battling with, you're engaging on, you're, you're praying through and studying the word, memorizing God's word to, to battle that. But what might be lurking behind? Out of the, the limelight. What makes you angry? What makes you discouraged or depressed? What makes you envious of others? What is something you always find time for? that God in his word would say you shouldn't. You're either fostering these passions or you're fleeing from them. So Paul here doesn't just state that what we shouldn't do. He tells us what we should do. We should pursue something else. When he says pursue, he means make an all-out effort to reach a goal. We pursue things all the time. And when we are in pursuit of something, we're aiming to catch it. It changes our lives. It, it has us. We make sacrifices that are needed so that we can acquire that thing. 
We make changes that we weren't willing to make before. That's why I was a never a good runner. I, I didn't care if I got that. I wasn't going to pursue it. But there's other things that I pursued. In fact, I remember pursuing Katie, who is now my wife of 15 years. And I figured out what she liked, how she spent her time, and I changed. I changed what I would spend my time on. I changed different things that I read, music that I listened to. I changed how I would use my energy so that I could pursue her. She served as a youth leader on my youth staff where I was a youth pastor, and I would schedule events and teaching time so that I could be around her more. She knows this now. I would schedule my week in a way so that I could have lunch with her. I would spend time and money and energy so that I could get her to know her more, to understand how she thought. I was willing to sacrifice for her. You, you guys know I love sports and I love the Tigers, okay? And this is when we were living in Detroit. And I was invited by friends to go down to a Tigers game and not just sit up in the bleachers, but in a suite, you know, where the rich people sit. And all this food and the, they had tickets that were right behind home plate. And I said, yes, I'll go. And a few days before, Katie said, I'm on a trip out of town and I'll be coming back into Flint. Can you pick me up and take me home? And I said, yep. And I'm relieving the game in the fourth inning and my friend's saying, what's wrong with you? And if I had the words, I would say, I'm in pursuit. I'm in pursuit. I, I want to catch her. And so I changed my life. And you've done the same. Perhaps for some of you, it's a spouse. But for others, maybe it's a job or a career. You've made sacrifices. You've expended energy. You worked and you were focused and you pursued. You changed your life. And my friends, Christians, this is the kind of pursuit that he's talking about. Paul says, pursue righteousness, faith. Love and peace. Is that your pursuit right now? Righteousness is uprightness. It's departing from iniquity, as Paul said in verse 19. A useful worker will pursue holy living. And faith, faith should probably be better translated faithfulness. It's the same meaning of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists in Ephesians 5, a, a useful worker will be loyal to God. And we should pursue love. This is agape love. It is a love that is not based on attractiveness or worthiness of those who are loved, but on their needs, even when they are most unattractive and unworthy. And a useful worker is selfless and self-giving. And we should pursue peace. And in this context, it refers to harmonious relationships between people and God and between each other, especially Christians. Paul says, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And a useful worker will pursue peace. What have you been pursuing this week? Think through your week. Not just Sunday, because you're here at church, but Friday. What were you pursuing on Friday? Was it these things? And although the church at Ephesus was one of the most mature and faithful congregations mentioned in the New Testament, 
they're experiencing at the time when, when Paul is writing this letter, they're experiencing serious internal conflict. This church had problems. And I have news for you. Every church has problems. Because every church is filled with sinners. But the, the charge is for Timothy to not only himself pursue this, but to teach to others to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But that's not all what the verse says. Because I didn't cover the best part. It says we're to pursue this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're to pursue this with the church family. That's you, church. And I don't know if you believe me or not, but you need the church. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. That's not what you learn in the Bible. You're not to pursue these things all by yourself. No, Paul is clear. The question is, do you believe him? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Some of you don't believe him, and I know this because you haven't joined the church. You attend the gathering of the church, even faithfully, even for years, but you haven't committed. And we're here ready to commit to you. You sit on the sidelines watching the church. And we are ready as the church to walk with you as you pursue Christ. And you have the privilege then to walk with us as we pursue Christ. Friends, that's what church membership is. It isn't paperwork. It isn't signing on a dotted line. It's the, a Christian living a Christian life, walking with other Christians, helping them, praying for them, supporting them, encouraging them. And I know some of you desperately need that in your life right now. So this is the useful worker. And I don't know about you, but when I finished reading this chapter and I read this list of what a useful Christian should be, I felt pretty discouraged. Because I felt like it didn't line up well. There's still areas where I need to grow. And I felt like if I just end there, we're all going to be discouraged as we walk out. Is, is, is that what you want? You enjoy that, coming to church, getting load on your back, and walking out with a heavy back? I'm failing as a pastor if, that's, if all I do is give you a to-do list. This is a heavy section of Scripture because I believe we all want to be found useful. And as you read this section, you read this book, even these challenges make us cry out like Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And here's the truth, friends. We all walked into this room this morning as failures this week. You and I failed this week. Not one of you had a perfect week. And 
and we continue to fail. And we continue to, to feel useless because we continue to not measure up. And while we have failed this week, we need to pause and take heart and remember that there was one who was perfect this week. There is one who was useful in every way, perfectly this week. Jesus was the useful, unashamed workman who perfectly taught God's word. And he taught with authority. And he taught graciously and compelling. And he showed us the way to God. And he could stand right next to God the Father with no shame because he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. And Jesus was the useful, honorable vessel. He was set apart for the special occasion for rescuing sinners. And because of his perfect fulfillment of God's righteous requirements and substitutionary death for his children, we can be made righteous and are given the power to live out his character on earth. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this message is for you to believe that Christ came to die for your sins. The very fact that you're sitting here means that there's still time to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So don't let today end without trusting him. Jesus was also the useful servant. He portrayed both meek and majestic in the great servant songs in Isaiah. The suffering servant endured the flogging of evil men and the mocking of sinners. And he went to the cross like a sheep led to the slaughter. The Lord's servant was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant, served us by taking our place on the cross. Amen. We're going to end this morning by singing about the gospel. And, and Ron gave a fantastic introduction this morning before we sang the song, the new song, His Mercy is More. And it's truly a remarkable hymn that takes us through the gospel story because this song reminds us over and again of the immeasurable grace of God. See, we may take in what we hear in the sermon, but we usually take home what we sing. Have you found that to be true? You need to come in our car because all my kids sing all the way home. And usually what they sing is what we sing. Singing is important for the Christian. Ron encouraged us. We, we do not sing here just to fill time. We, we sing to learn of God, to glorify God, to focus on God. And so I want to encourage you. I want to read through some of the lyrics of the song. We're going to sing again the new one that you learned today. I don't encourage you to sing because we're going to sing about the grace of God. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. What worries you most in the darkness? Whatever it is, God's love for you is stronger and it's new every morning. The darkness doesn't win. His mercy is new. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. 
omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Who could receive us? Who could welcome us? We know ourselves. We know, we know our wrongs. And God knows all of us. He knows us deep down inside. And because of Christ, he doesn't count our sins against us. Praise the Lord that his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friends, the gospel is for the whole of life. And this is the gospel-filled song we can sing for the rest of our lives. The weakest, the vilest, the poor need not shy away from his grace. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Then the last line, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. These extraordinary lyrics joyfully infuse these truths into the minds and hearts who sing them. It helps us understand what it actually means to be free and forgiven. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to end our time singing. And if you're new to our church, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just checking things out, I want to encourage you just to listen. Because we're going to sing the gospel to you. And men, I want to encourage you to sing. You're not more manly because you stand there with an angry face. Sing. Sing out as we sing this glorious gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you for sending your son to be our substitute. Thank you, because of Jesus, we can know you, God, and we can pray to you, and we can sing of you. Thank you for this church family. God, I missed them last week. Just being away for one week, God, I missed this family. Family that we can gather each week to learn together, to have friendships with, to love and enjoy one another pray for. Help us to not take this church family for granted. And help us now to sing of your grace and mercy and loving kindness. Amen.